Hi again, I'm Mario Antiveros. And I'm Shauna Ludker. Welcome back to Extras, Artists, and Rights. Each episode brings a group of artists around a table to talk together about what art can do. They share strategies for reaching across the boundaries of their disciplines, how they build bridges, how they work collectively, and how they create supportive conditions and opportunities. Today we bring you episode six, Behind the Closed Door, Intimacy, Collaboration, and Access. We welcome back artists Arshia Hawk, Marcus Kulian Nazario, Latipa, and Mario Ibarra Jr. In the second part of this roundtable, the artists delve more deeply into the importance of both intimacy and engagement. They talk about how to theorize, act, and create from a place of intimacy, whether it be the nightclub or grandmother's pillowcase. Marcus, coming from AIDS activism and ACT UP, talks about the nightclub and how it can be, he says, a very intimate, personal space where many people don't even get to be themselves until they arrive at that sacred space. Arshia also highlights the club space as a place of collectivity and talks about using it for creative expression and for organizing. She addresses the paradox of artists of color being exploited as they gain more visibility and suggests choosing to be silent can be a form of reclaiming power. The group talks about protecting themselves from the exhaustion of explaining everything. There's a difference between explaining and sharing. And they talk about the importance of bearing witness and listening when collaborating. Please note, the artist Latipo was previously known as Michelle Dizon, and in this episode, she refers to herself as Michelle. You can find more information about this podcast, the artists, and their work on Extra's website at extraonline.org. Where we left off was addressing deficiencies and lacks in the world around us, and... I wanted to open it up and see if anyone had anything from the last session that you wanted to bring forward, or if there were some new questions that came about based on what we were listening to and hearing, experiencing. Yeah, I, I wanted to pick up on the thread of uh, intimacy, uh, which I thought was very profound, both in the way Marcus was describing the interviews you were doing with men, and then the discussion we started getting, getting into about um, also uh, your group being closed. And then when Mario was talking about the dancing for ourselves. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I'd, I, w I just want to throw into the mix uh, that the current project that I'm working on is uh, called Memory and Resistance Laboratory. And it's got different facets, but one facet is trying to develop collaborations with grassroots organizations, social movements, and kind of uh, work together to think about what media needs uh, they might have. So the current collaboration uh, that I'm in the midst of is with the Southern California Library, which is a um, community archive, community library, not funded by the LA Public Library System in South LA. And uh, we're embarking on a, a kind of um, community listening project. And you know, according to the LA Times, it's the most dangerous neighborhood for black folks to live in LA. It's you know, full of different kinds of vulnerabilities from homelessness and drugs and undocumented folks. And just like it's a kind of that, that kind of environment. And so we're coming up against a lot of uh, you know, questions about you know, how it is that you do a community listening project in a neighborhood like um, this part of South LA. Um, one of the things that we um, were talking about, and when I'm talking about me, I'm talking about me and the, the library, the folks who are at the library. We've been talking about, uh, on the one hand, the kind of stereotypes that certainly exist about you know, um, South LA and uh, countering those with just trying to focus our listening on um, questions of love and particularly love in the time of displacement because it is a neighborhood that's quickly gentrifying. Um, but then, as I was mentioning earlier, um, we're also facing the um, the question of like, how do you do a listening project in a in a place where people are so vulnerable? So the space is, you know, a place people come in and out of, um, but usually with certain needs, you know, food or using the bathroom <laughs> or you know whatever, you know, just like really basic stuff. But it's that kind of place. And uh, more often than not, there are researchers, but they're you know operating in a in a different kind of class than the people who live around the library. And yet, um, certainly, the urgency to uh, bear witness 
I think, to the lives and the love that exists in the neighborhood is is present for us. So the kind of the challenge that we're facing is, on the one hand, like, how do we um, center intimacy, right? Um, the kind of conversations mm. that you have when you're not being recorded. Right, right. <laughs> and the kind of, you know, uh, life worlds that... Um, the real, the, rea the real life <laughs> that comes up in those moments. And alternately, like, what kind of strategies do you use to, um, you know, maybe capture a little bit of that ephemerality of, of well, that I situation? Well, I learned a lot about how what I do now, which was really invaluable, was I was a street outreach worker. Mm -hmm. So I was um, collecting interviews in the street and doing um, harm reduction work and needle distribution. And so a lot of my work was, you know, working with these um, really high-risk um, populations and trying to figure out how to how to reach out to them, how to be how to get them to a clinic appointment, how to get them how to teach them how to clean a needle or use a condom, or um, and um, it was really sort of that education. Um, it really has come in handy in my art practice. Like I never would have thought that that job of mine early on would have influenced the work that I make today. But I think that people that are already in the community, that are already talking to people, that are already are the gatekeepers in the community that you want to reach out to, like they might be a good resource around who is who is willing to talk to you, or who who are the people that will connect you to the to the bread behind the counter, as it were. <laughs> totally, and you know, I mean, I, th I think it makes me think about. Um, you know, this question of intimacy, because I think, Mario, you were talking about it as a assessment period. But what happens when we understand it as, you know, not the assessment period, but actually the work itself? Yeah, well, that, well, that I, I have this whole chart that I didn't go into, but it's funny that you bring up love because when I talk about assessment, it's precedented by love. Like, so there's like, if you could imagine this triangle, right? Because when I'm teaching artists, I understand they need to have visuals, right? Uh, so like this triangle and the, the slope going uphill uh, to the left is love. That's I write the word love. And we all know that love is, is not always easy. Like if you have partners and throughout your life, you know, you really have to go through negotiating processes, which um, people are always confused the term uh, negotiating with compromise. Like, like they're, oh, I had to compromise that. And then I'm like, well, why did you have to compromise that? Compromise means that somebody's foot is on your neck, right? Like, but why don't we change the language to negotiate? Why don't we uh, learn that going into institutional settings, I think that that's one of the things that has helped me is that you're going in, and even in relationships, we negotiate, right? My wife wants Chinese one day, I want Mexican another day, we negotiate, right? Uh, and that's in a day-to-day -day and in the long term. So love going uphill. And why do we go through the struggle of, of going through love is because we want to reach the pinnacle. So the pinnacle of, the, of the, the triangle, right? And from the pinnacle or the top of the point of the triangle, we have a beautiful view. Like when everything's working and our negotiations are cool and we have win-win and all that, like we get to get to the top and like, wow, we could see everything. And uh, I'll use the analogy that I once heard a story that the man that claimed, climbed Mount Everest, I believe the most times like, and this is, somebody could fact check me, and, but I don't know if this was the National Enquirer where I got this information from, but he climbed like 200 times and people usually do it once and are satisfied. And somebody asked him like, why did you do that like 200 times? And he said, well, the first of course was for my ego. Like I climbed this mountain, this love thing uh, for my ego because I wanted to prove I could do it. Then secondly, I brought my daughter up because I wanted her to see this pinnacle. And the last 198 times I came because I wanted everybody else to understand what the view was from up here and what the experience was, right? So the uphill battle is the hard part, which is love. But once you get past love and you, you're, it's proven that you love a space or you love a community or you love a partner or you love an experience or you love a field of interest or you love your, the field that you practice in, then you spend time. And time is where this assessment process happens. Like if I don't, if I don't spend time, with, I love her, but if I don't spend time with my partner, I don't spend time with something that I'm invested in, you don't, you don't know it, right? And you don't know the nuances of it, which, which were the new, and I say the assessment time and the spending time is actually the fun part. That's like the downhill slide. And why do we do this on, on this side when I talked about the free estimate, estimate with assessment? is because on the bottom and the foundational part of the triangle is we want access. 
access. We want access not only for ourselves, but we want access for the folks that we're working with. Uh, and if we could create like in the center of the triangle, like a, mo a notion of synergy where all these things are happening simultaneously without a hierarchical uh, spin on them, but are like make sense and are working simultaneously, you could have some real action happening. So like if a folk, real, if, a, if a person in a, in a community has is a stakeholder in it and it decides not to leave for whatever reason, didn't move out to Palmdale or... Lancaster or whatever, and is staying in a community like South Central is probably because they probably have a literal financial stake in it that they are owning a home or their family has owned the home generationally or whatever. Um, but also, and the flip side of that, the police have a stake in it. Like, what, why are they flying helicopters all day long in a place like South Central Los Angeles? Are like, I'm always thinking, are, are they training these guys here? Like, where they train them to send them out to other places in the country because that helicopter like flies nonstop. All the military tactics that are enforced by the LAPD are, are first like try, seem to be like where they trial their um, their tactics in a place like South Los Angeles. Uh, I worked on Slauson and Western when I first got out of graduate school, and um, I worked for a furniture manufacturer there. And my job was door knocking. He's a he he is a patron for the arts, and he would bring in something like the Ballet African to come and dance for the community in his warehouses. And my job was to go be a door knocker, not unlike what you were saying, Marcus, and like knock on all the managers from all the apartment buildings, like, hey, can you bring all your kids to see the Ballet African? And they're like, what's that? And you're like, oh, it's like this beautiful dance troupe, you know? And they would bring all the kids and everybody from the... So like, you have to spend time. So like assessment is like a second phase to like what first is love. If you don't love it, have no inkling for it, you haven't... Uh, you, you shouldn't be there. And yesterday I wrote, read this quote uh, from Buddha that says, um, the difference between like and love is that if you like something, you go pluck it. Like, oh, I like it, I'm gonna take it. But if you love it, you attend to it daily, right? So if somebody is spending time in a place like South Central Los Angeles doing research or just being a person that lives there, it's, it's essential that they love it, not just have a notion of like for the place, but that they love, uh, like right now, uh, Lauren Halsley is doing a lot of important work around South Central Los Angeles. And it's obvious, I went to her Nike sneaker release like a couple of weeks ago, and it's obvious that as an artist, she loves the place that she comes from. And it's like all the cultural nuances uh, are, are being fed into this practice. She has an exhibition that opens, I think this week, um, I think out of one of the big galleries, somebody help me out. Uh, I want to say Kordansky. Uh, yeah. So she's opening at Kordansky, and but it also walks this line, right? It, it walks this line that I feel you were talking about, like where does being an bringing stuff from the outside to this inside somehow invalidate it, or does it validate it, or do, is the street cred removed from it? And there's all these negotiations that will go back and forth in relationship to like how you take that information from a place that you're researching into like what Marcus was talking about in relationship to like the commodity part of it that is like the golden, Willy Wonka golden ticket of the experience and where people will want to stand in line for it and whatever. And I think that, uh, so love, you're you're right on has to be like at the core or don't, or don't even don't even go there like what if you're in the state of like like <laughs> don't even go there just just uh you know like the things on social media like don't take your actual physical body to a place if you have no long-term invested uh relationship with that place or would like to or, or want to love it and i think one of our mentors carla and i we, we started out at a place in Long Beach called the Homeland Cultural Arts Center when we were young people. And the, the founders was a man named Manasar Gamboa, who was a poet and playwright, and a woman named Dixie Swift. And um, they were already like in their 50s when they were starting this organization. And uh, Dixie was the executive director, Manasar was the artistic director, and they came together for their first meeting. And you know they came with the yellow uh, legal pads and they were gonna make all these notes. And Dixie, they said, okay, I want you to write down um, everything that you want to do or accomplish or how we're going to interface with this community. And Dixie said she was writing all these notes and like flipping the legal, legal pad pages and like a, in a fury to like get all this information down. And that Manasaj just wrote one word on the page and like set his pen down. And 
she was kind of confused, like, oh, what is this one word that this guy writes down? And when she wanted to share, the thing that he had written down was the, the word love, and that's it. Like, so to be able to do that and foster that is, is, uh, is important. I want the golden ticket. Yeah, me too. <laughs> That's what I want. It's like, why are we told we can't have the golden ticket? I feel like a lot of times we, like, we're expected to do work. I mean, the work that I do, I choose to do it, but, like, why does our work have to be so altruistic or have to tell a story from a certain angle? Like, why can't we want commercial success? Why can't we get hired as the professor and be stuck in the adjunct um, um, positions? Why can't, I mean, you know, that's, um, that's what, what, um, you know, I guess back to my original answer about what, what is the urgency that I have right now. It's like I feel like the little time I have left or the little time we have left on this earth, basically, because we're destroying it, it's like how can we just do it better? People, it's so frustrating to see like our, you know, our president, who I don't want to name, uh, 45, um, you know, it's like he's like the standard of like how to get ahead being lazy. You know, like here we have the leader of this country who doesn't do anything and it's almost like this example of like, look, if you're ignorant and you're a sheep and you're an idiot, you are going to get ahead. Don't read the Mueller report. Don't read the impeachment. You know, um, just follow, you know, it, it's just um, really frustrating to me to um, to see that and then to see how it trickles down into sort of the rest of of society and into the into our communities. How he's just reinforcing ignorance. You know, it's interesting that you point that out about the current leadership, and then thinking about what Michelle was saying, which is I think a lot of uh, the, about working hard enough that you that you know when you work hard enough you'll you'll get somewhere twice which I as think hard. is a, well or yes twice said. as hard for <laughs> uh, I think a lot of us um, yeah. as you know immigrants or people of color were, were told that narrative you know it's that narrative of self determinism that is so uh, foundational to this country yeah I think that's a yet it's like a total <laughs> it's like not it, it only applies it's like it's like made you know it's made for the worker drones or something yeah my my grandmother um my abuela that passed away a few years ago um a few, like more than 10 years ago now I, I was in a show at the sculpture center and uh they said that for the catalog we could do whatever we want like it wasn't going to just be like an image of the work but we could do whatever we want so my grandmother was getting older, so my, my wife Carla and I decided we're going to go interview my grandma because we're going to hear these stories, right? We want to hear these kind of legacy stories. And um, we went in with a lot, I went in with a lot of assumptions, like talking about love, like you think, oh, I know this, we're intimate. And I went to the interview with a lot of assumptions. And the first assumption that I made was that I put the little, we were in her garden, I put our little recorder down and, uh, you know, uh, we asked her, I asked her the first question, like, oh, why did you immigrate um, from Mexico to the United States? And I almost answered for her, thinking, like, because I've been programmed with, like, these brown ceiling things of, like, oh, for a better life? Like, that's, like, the number one question. If we were playing Family Feud, like, the number one question on the board for a better life. Ding, 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 right? And when I was about to say that, she, like, put her hand down and she was like, for what better life? I came here for revenge. And we were like, revenge, like Carla and I like scooted back from the table and she totally shifted the pantheon of like what the relationship was for like what my assumption was, what like my broad stroke assumption for what like, oops, my legacy was in the United States and what I was supposed to be doing and what the intentionality for like why I was going to school, why I was going to college, why I was going to graduate school and all this stuff. I was thinking, oh, I'm gonna have a better life. And no, I, then when she told me that, I'm like, revenge. It like opened up all kinds of other possibilities. Revenge is a motivator. Yeah, it is a motivator. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit more about capturing intimacy? those strategies, because it's that comes back to those closed doors and a very personal space that can be very empowering. I mean, just as a general, I didn't mean to put the burden on you, Michelle. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's like, maybe I, I wouldn't use the word capturing in oh, intimacy. Oh, I'm sorry. I would say, no, 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 I, I don't, I, I think I'm just reformulating oh, maybe. Oh, yeah, oh, okay. Um, just to think about, I mean, for myself, like, how do I work from a place of intimacy? How do I theorize from a place of intimacy? How does that intimacy drive, you know, the analysis? Um, one example I can offer is, and 
I, I know that there's our shared interests and questions of archives here, so I'm mm -hmm. excited to go there with you all. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, I've been doing a, a lot of uh, archival work, and first uh, in provincial um, uh, libraries in the small place that my uh, family is from in the southern Philippines, and that all started because. Grandma story. I wanted to see a picture <laughs> of my great great grandma, uh, of what the place was like when my great great grandma was alive, because there were stories about her being magical. <laughs> Supposedly, she could uh, walk down the street invisible, or wow. you know, um, uh, she would disappear for three days. People would be like, "Where have you been?" And she'd come back dripping wet. She'd be like, I've been to Mecca. Wow. <laughs> and then supposedly, you know, like all this magic even um, moved into after she was gone from, you know, this world that we know because people who would tend to her grave, their lives would turn mm, around wow. <laughs> if they, uh, you know, took care of her, her grave site. So she, she was uh, kind of this tremendous, you know, figure or story in my childhood. And so I just wanted to see a picture because I thought I wanted to write a novel or something. Um, but I couldn't find the picture. <laughs> I couldn't find the picture in the, like the province. I couldn't find the picture in Manila. You know, I found the picture in Washington D.C. Wow. <laughs> in the Colonial Archive, of course. One of her travels. Uh, she got <laughs> photographed in D.C. <laughs> you know, it's like a picture of the town center in the twenties. You know, oh. so this is kind of, you know, uh, eighteen years or so into U.S. occupation. But I, I you know, I, you know, my brain was wanting her as a figure to kind of counter, you know, Spanish occupation, U.S. occupation through her magic. You know, that was mm. the idea. I never wrote this, but it became an art piece. Um, but at any rate, like all of this kind of archival work uh, really brought up, you know, what it means for me is in my body to go into the colonial archive and what that strange experience is like, uh, which I, I would say is like really contradictory. You know, it's like all of the kind of wonder and the search of it and um, wanting to find something. But then it's also like the kind of numbness and like the incessant repetition of the that eye um, that, you know, is I think this kind of doubleness of that experience. But at any rate, like um, where I finally found my way into thinking about all of these issues was, uh, you know, I happened upon a, uh, an image of um, embroidery, which uh, in the U.S. colonial archive and through like some films I came to understand was a way for um, um, U.S. colonizers to profit off of Filipina labor for export, like mm. all this really intricate embroidery. And that brought me back to, oh, my God, when I was a kid and my grandmother um, had immigrated, all she did was crochet. You know, that's all she did. And that was how she, um, you know, uh, psychically could survive the mm. pain mm -hmm. <laughs> of that migration because it was not fun. It was a horrible, horrible experience for her. But she was here so that we could uh, try to petition, you know, her children because that was a quicker way than my mom petitioning them, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Um, but at any rate, like, then I understood that that um, pillowcase was actually a way to theorize the archive because mm. um, in that pillowcase was all of, you know, her attempts to psychically survive this whole trauma and to make something beautiful, you know, out of string <laughs> and um, and this kind of like way to be creative and uh, still hold some part of herself, you know, in the midst of, you know, being totally displaced. So, um, you know, that then I understood that, you know, all of the ways in which, you know, we could understand uh, memory and, and histories in a way captured in this object that I thought never thought was anything of any importance until mm -hmm. you know I saw that one image of mm -hmm. the um, the crochet and embroidery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's where I, that's where you saw it. That's what I, I felt the moment of the detail that my grandmother told me of the revenge you saw in the detail of that that embodiment in the crochet. Right. But, you know, I think in this, these sites of intimacy are um, all of the complexity and all of the um, uh, counter-narratives that will never get told, <laughs> right, in, in the, you know, more dominant ways in which our stories get. The objects are powerful things, and that's all you have when you leave, is that, that, that thing you make from what you, that you, the thing you make that you learned how to do over there, or that thing you brought from over there that's only the only thing left that's a reminder. Right, and, and the way that you can remake 
these colonial knowledges, mm -hmm. right, and, and kind of um, um, so that they're not just, you know, in the service of power, but actually in your own, you know, survivance. Mm -hmm. I was um, thinking, Marcus, from our earlier, uh, from the earlier part of this conversation, about what you were talking, uh, what you were saying about one-on-one -on -one interactions and intimacy built that way, and uh, in relation to Disco Stan and the project that I'm doing with that, um, I, I feel like all of us remember in this room probably remember a time before the internet, but uh, because I'm in this communal space is intergenerational, so there's a lot of um, of people coming to the space that really have built their identities through the internet. So, um, and you know, I'm, I'm interacting with, with them a lot and seeing kind of this um, desire for connection, you know, that we all know now through social media, this kind of uh, intense downloading of, of, of intimacy in quotes, you know, where everyone is kind of speaking um, all of their, you know, like every vicissitude of every emotion that they're going through is being played out on this online forum. And, um, and yet there's, when I speak to, you know, a lot of these um, people that come to the space, you know, there's a lot of, um, they come to the space because it's, it's, it is providing something um, that is really deeply missing despite this um, constant um, apparent available space for expression. Um, so I, I guess, you know, what I'm interested in, and I think this kind of ties into what you were talking about, Michelle, about, um, you know, where, like, where actually there's, there's this moment of, of, of our dialogues being centered and um, given voice and then that turns into performance, which we've talked about, that can turn into commodification. So where do we go from not previously not having a voice to having, having spaces and now deliberately maybe choosing certain areas to be silent as, um, as a form of, um, I don't know, reclaiming power, you know, when, when you choose that, when you choose to kind of... Um, remove yourself from certain dialogues because having to be part of every dialogue, explaining everything, um, it's not only exhausting, but it's actually, um, I think it's a, a subtle form of exploitation. It's unethical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And exploitive. Yeah. Yeah, I'm tired of explaining. I don't want to explain anything to anybody anymore. Yeah. I'm done. Well, they could you know. Google it. <laughs> like, you don't understand that? Google it. Like, isn't that, like, within, like, contemporary literature? Like, I was at the University of North Dakota Writers Conference last year, and uh, Viet Nguyen was one of the speakers, and, like, all of these uh, writers of color. And pretty much that was the consensus. They were like, we're not writing with the explanatives inserted into the text. Like... If you need to find out what this word is or what this tradition is or what this article of clothing is or what the traditional Tagalog name is for the embroidery, like, Google that shit. Like, you don't, we don't need to be, like, doing two things simultaneously. Like, we don't need to be uh, the, the, purve the purveyors and the, the people are creating and creating, like, the index or the map uh legend at the same time like yeah. that's a lot of work Absolutely. like it's like we, we're just putting it out there and mm -hmm. if you're interested they, they they an audience should meet you halfway i guess that's kind of what their their um sentiment was that's what i left with and it was kind of liberating because i was always feeling like oh I'm, like i'm a teacher i've taught for a long time so i've always feel like okay like i'll go into the market and start being a teacher and my wife is like madi you're not working right now like get away from those people right and i'm like okay i'm leaving them alone but that is built into me, but it doesn't always have to be in my work, and I, and it shouldn't always be in my work because then it loses a poetics. Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to, <laughs> to clarify that, like I, I, I don't mind sharing. 
There's a difference between sharing and explaining. Yes, yes. Um, like the two larger works that I've done in the past couple of years, um, Si Pero No uh, which, uh, and Macho Stereo, there are instances in the work where there are audio recordings in Spanish, there's text in Spanish, and um, I was asked to, you know, aren't you going to translate these things or don't you want to? And if it was a didactic, yes, it needs to be translated. But if it's in the work, I was like, no, I don't want to translate it. And it's not for everybody to understand. And I don't feel the need to do that. And then also as an artist of color, you know, I've received uh, the few uh, awards I've received uh, to make my work have come from like the Latino grant. And I've always, I've always felt pressure like having to make, like I had to really think about like, I'm just going to make the work. I'm the brown person. I'm getting the money. I'm gonna do what I want to do. I, I kind of felt the pressure, like, well, I guess I have to only interview Latin American people, or I have to only interview. I have to only something, mm -hmm. and then I feel like, nope, my money, it's mine now. I'm gonna make the work that I want to make. Why should I have to be beholden now to make, like, to continue to be brown, like, you know, this, this perform brown, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree with you and resonate with you on the, uh, you know, resisting translation. There's small formal gestures, you know, that that have worked in my practice, you know, removing even the italics on a foreign word, no parentheticals, you know, um, just things like that. And, and making things more bilingual, even though it's it's a language that, you know, is not, it's not it's definitely not a second language of the world, um, really starting to to think about about those things and and living with it when you know it doesn't always have currency you know mm -hmm. and um, and continuing to make that work even if it's um, you know that like the the most recent uh, exhibition that I have deals with um, a post-colonial history um, of the partition and there's a lot that is not explained that would take, there's a density, and I think that frustrates a lot of people. Mm. And it, you know, for me as an artist, it's, it's, it's difficult because I, I, I feel like maybe, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily translate into all the forms that it could because people don't really want to take the time mm. to like dig through that density. Does that mean that I don't work at that in that way anymore? I, you know, what I, that's one thing I'm thinking about. What what is going to happen to my practice going forward? Because that's the kind of work that I want to make, and yet unless I s unpack it all, it seems to kind of um, sometimes get mm. get lost because people don't know how to relate to it, or they don't want to take the time to. I forget, I always get this kind of underhanded question because like I've been able to show abroad and all over the place, and um, I feel like. Um, I feel like I'm a storyteller. Like in my work, I tell stories, and they're about people. I tell I used to tell my grandma that I make portraits and landscapes. They're either about people or places, right? And that's translatable to like anybody. And um, but I get to go abroad and do these things in other places. But then when I would come back home to Los Angeles, like I wouldn't get these questions because since Los, Los Angeles has like such a relationship with like Mexican culture, Mexican American culture, like people pinpoint it as like a designated area that has boundaries. Like once you leave, like, I don't know, Arizona, like nobody will understand it. Like, you know, like there's not gonna get it past like certain like areas, like it has its uh, jurisdiction. And um, so people would ask me, like if I'd had a show in London or whatever, like, well, how did they get it there? Like they, or how did they, they, they say it in a, it's, it's kind of sound sense here, but it's also, I started taking it as an underhanded question. Like, oh, how did they take it there? Or like, how did they respond to it? That's more like the school way of saying like, oh, how did they respond to the work? And I'd be like, oh, they loved it. Like they loved it, right? Like I had a great time and the people were really interested in it and, I, I, and it gave me a platform, you know, be, besides making my work for me to tell my stories. like about this story with my grandma, Revenge, or whatever it was. And um, then I've, when I would think about it later, I would, I would always say, was that an underhanded question saying that they don't think my work is relatable and they're like surprised that it was relatable in this other place? And, then, and I would always think like that, 
I, did, I would always think, is that an underhanded question or are they sincerely asking? So I started becoming suspect of that question. Like, uh, my work is about storytelling, it's about human uh, relationships, it's about all these things. So that should be translatable to all kinds of folks. Like, it shouldn't just be like, oh, because my grandma came from Mexico, that somebody wouldn't get it if they weren't from there. And then I thought about all the literature I had to read, like in middle school and high school. And I remember having to read, like, the diary of Anne Frank. And I was like, I was never in World War II. And I never was, like, the, you know, a girl that was hidden. And But I remember having to read that story. And all of those kids, when we had to write our book reports, were like, oh, the little girl. Like, we were all sad about it. And so we were we could relate to a kind of human story, and when the art is good, I think when the art is good, when I, and and I you know speaking to y'all here, like you, I've read your resumes and things, and like you've been all over the place. So like there's substance to the work, and when there's substance to the work, there should be a mul there should be and there is a multiplicity of reads. So like the things that you think that you're addressing for your own investigation and your own reportage and your own understanding isn't always going to be considered by all the multiple audience members that are interfacing with the work. They're going to be coming with their own things and your work will be dense enough for them to have entry points at different levels, either if it's just through like a pure design aesthetic or if it's through the storytelling or if it's through which is you or two were talking about working with music. Like if music isn't the most like 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 kind of interfacing thing that if we don't understand the language, we understand the language of music and just physically, like physiologically, like we but can respond to it. It's an intentional choice for me to work with music because I know that people will understand that. Uh -huh. So like I am, I mean, it is a strategy that I do employ knowing that people are not going to speak, necessarily speak Spanish mm -hmm. or speak English mm -hmm, even. Mm -hmm. And so although I'm saying these things about not translating and you can't, it's a podcast, so you can't see the work. The work that I'm talking about is like really direct and very actually accessible mm -hmm. um, to pretty much my mom, which is kind of, she's always in my mind a lot of the time. Like, yeah. What's my mom going to think when she's looking at this, you know? Um, so when I'm talking about not wanting to like not translate, it's not like I'm, I'm intentionally not, I'm going out of my way to not translate. I'm just trying to be true to the, to the, the vision of, of what I'm trying to create and to be true to the voices of the people um, that I interviewed, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Another thing that um, was pressing to me and about time I was saying is like, I wanna make, I've been, I wanna make really bad work now. I wanna make all the work that I've been really afraid not to make. Mm. I just wanna go ahead and make it. I see so much bad work and bad TV, bad everything. I'm like, I want in on that. You know, like, I want to take more risks, and I want to challenge myself more, and I want to present more work that's by other uh, colleagues that's challenging and risky and vulnerable, because I think in these times that we're obsessed with these in Instagram filters and this, like, uh, social media perfection, I think that humanity and fallibility and just mistakes and tears and wrinkles and that that's really important right now more than ever. I think that like the human, seeing the human hand, seeing flaws, failing, I think is really a really important thing to me right now. Anyone want to share about the recent failures? <laughs> Were there some questions that you had for coming here that we had uh, talked about? There's a question that we brought to the yeah. table that was burning in our, in our minds. Uh -huh. In relationship to communities and building those collaborative collaborations or solidarities? I think there's, um, I like to see, like I like that there's more, I see like there's more services available to artists right now. I think that we keep thinking about art and art market and the art world, but I think that all those things don't exist without the artists. Mm -hmm. And that um, it's great to see that there are more services available to artists around their managing their money, managing their career, figuring out their website, like uh, uh, resources like Creative Capital, places like Women's Center for Creative Work, places like 18th Street, 18th Street Art Center, where it's artist-focused, and not so much focused on the work, but focused on what the artists need and able to make the work that they're gonna make. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is um, really important right now. Um, yeah, they're facilitating, not player-hating. 
right? Enabling yeah. spaces, enabling practices. I guess the question for me, and I feel like I've kind of been circulating around this, but, uh, you know, again, that certain communities are being, um, are in vogue in the moment, you know, and so uh, getting funding, et cetera, um, but there's still a limited amount of resources. We still get funded by institutions, most of us, you know, so um, there's scarcity. And then how do you negotiate that scarcity of resource with uh, when you're trying to build community and yet everyone, every individual in that community is dependent on all on, on that same pool of resources. So mm -hmm. unfortunately, I mean, that works against community because then people are, you know, reaching for the same fruit. Mm -hmm. And so how to, how, how to deal with that? I think know? a good way to strategize that, and, uh, and um, this is a very important point you're bringing up, is uh, when I talked about the urgency to like reascribe value to things, is as artists to understand that we, like when you're saying scarcity to resources, I'm imagining like money, like through institutions. But Marcus is bringing up this point of like that there are these other kind of in-kind supports that we have. But I think as artists, one of the things that is very important is that we start understanding and putting into action a sense that we um, navigate uh, multiple streams of capital. Like we navigate cultural capital, we navigate social capital, we navigate um, you know, all these types of things, community capital. And one of the things that I, I think is important to understand when you're working within specific communities is to understand that they're, the art, our artists are trained with a keen sense of observation. Like first day in art school, they teach us how to draw and stare at an apple. Like I'm looking at this stuff on the table and it kind of looks like some still life. You draw a box and you drop a paper bag and an apple and all this kind of stuff. So they develop our sense of observation, but while that is happening, they're also developing, when we're learning these things, a sense of critical thought, right? Because we have to put the relationships together between the box and the apple and all these types of things. But above that, we're also taking simultaneous action by making a mark on a paper. So this is like basic drawing 101 when you're sitting in a drawing class. And that's the first day of teaching an artist, observation, critical thinking, and applying strategy directly. Um, in any other field, uh, they train you to do these separately. Like, a, like imagine a, a person that works to survey streets because a street needs fixing. They write something down, they take the observation and notes, they take it to an office in downtown, the engineer makes a plan, the engineer gives it to a foreman, that foreman goes out with the crew and fixes the street. Those are like three different entities that are addressing a problem. As artists, we get to do that simultaneously. So we are trained in kind of finding the gaps um, in our spheres or in our oeuvres. So one of the things that is really important for us if we're working um, directly in communities is to start seeing how like there are gaps and open fissures of in-kind support, uh, uh, navigational support, which is also very important. Like, why did those two white women get those jobs at the institution you're working at? Because they had navigational support because the hiring committee was probably five other w white women. So they have these navigational support in relationship to like how resources are pooled. So like if we could think about the different types of capital that we as artists are can associate ourselves with. And I was just thinking, because people ask me, a lot of young artists are like, well, how do you rent a space or how do you get a space? And I'm like, oh, I, my, my, um, my advice now is like, why do you want to get a space? Like there's the Zumba place that for three hours a day is empty. Like, why don't you go ask them if you could use the Zumba place for the three hours instead of taking on all the overhead of like renting the space and paying the power bill and all that. So like if we could start understanding that our relationship to like, not just institute, art institutions, but the other types of kind of things around us um, and the resources that we have with all the folks around us are like a kind of a holistic understanding, like the man at the market that gives, that gives us his old bread or something, I don't know. But um, we need to start understanding that we can operate in all these spheres of capital 
so that when the money is low, we're not feeling like we're only, because I felt this way, believe me, that when the money is low, we're not feeling like we're operating in this kind of, um, uh, you know, really scary place. Like we're, it's so scary to be in that place. So I think I, if we could kind of start attuning ourselves uh, with all the different types of capital that we can navigate in so that if our money's low, like our navigational capital is high, our social capital is high, like our, our communal capital is high. And um, because I think that we're in a kind of conundrum of like a kind of another thing with the arts where uh, the, the infrastructure for the brown ceiling within the art is that we're on the less receiving end in terms of the capital and only a few get to like participate in the the kind of, you know, pie crust of, of whatever, wherever money is going. So um, I, I'm, I'm, it's, I'm new to this too. Like I'm, 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 I'm telling you this because I'm just coming to the realization that I need personally too to operate in these kinds of spaces where uh, communal support is important and all these other types of support because I, I understand that, you know, if you're not having money, it, it could get really dark, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so how do I, how do I combat that with other types of richness, like other types of wealth? Um, and uh, it's very hard to do and it takes, it, but I don't think it's a whole 180 we have to do. Like, I don't think it's like a whole 180 in our perspective we have to do, but just a nudge to like an obtuse angle that we're not akin to looking at, you know? And if we can, if we could help each other do that, that'd be great. Hmm. How have you worked with, how have you had to negotiate that reaching for the same prize or the same fund? I think, I think a lot of it has been, you know, working collaboratively. There's a, a lot of collaboration um, in, in, in the work that I do, not just through Discostan, not mm -hmm. just through Muzis, but even in, uh, you know, solo projects, so-called solo projects, there'll be um, collaborators that are brought in for different um, levels. And so I'm trying to think from, from that lens. Uh, but, you know, that, that's also a whole other um, kind of comes with its own set of, of things to negotiate, you know, in terms of collaboration. And I've learned a lot about that um, in the last couple of years as well. So, um, so yeah, just really trying to think about um, how to create alliances and, and, and work more collectively with the artists that are coming to the table with similar concerns because a lot of us are arriving at certain themes at this moment mm. um, in our practices. Do you think that that recognition can create some sustainability rather than, because you had just brought up sort of certain communities, certain identities, ethnicities coming into the marketplace where people are wanting to fund. Right, I and mean, so, for me right now, I'm thinking specifically about artists from Muslim communities. That's very, right. you know, in vogue right now, let's be honest, you know, so it's, it's, it's also, um, but it's also at this moment, you know, and then what's going to happen after this moment, right. you know. So do you think that those collaborations then can, like you were saying, uh, building ideas about the future. So those, those collaborations today, can, do you think they can be the foreground for sustainability to think about that, to build ideas into the future? I think they can place. definitely be be sources of creative sustainability. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, I, I think that there's, you know, a lot of, um, yeah, I think I think it can be, um, it's, it's, it's giving us, you know, the people that I know that I'm working with, um, not just solidarity, support, um, strength, uh, from sources that we need, you know, coming from the histories that we come from that we can't find elsewhere. So um, just to know for myself that there's, you know, because I grew up in a certain kind of community and then left that community and just knowing that there are other artists or creative thinkers who can relate to that path 
has been um, really nourishing. In terms of where it goes, it just it all feels really um, in in the moment right now. It's like kind of so. I'm not sure what the what the end process is or where it's going to land. Hmm. I've been thinking about it in a, that same point, but in a from a different angle. So I have this. I, have, I was working with a life coach this year, and um, my life coach. He's cool, but. He the things that he posts there, I'm always like, oh, when's this guy gonna like fall from grace? Because <laughs> he's like, I'm like, when's this guy? He's like doing good now. He just bought a home. He, he's like, he posts like all his stuff, I guess, for us followers to be like inspired by. But I'm always like a naysayer, like, oh, this dude, like he's gonna like lose all his money next week. Like I'm always like that, right? Like, so. But then today, I he posted something, and I was like. But why? Why am I thinking like this? Like, why don't? Why am I? Why am I not invested in this guy's continued success? Like, he should be. Like, yeah, I'm glad that he's doing that. Like, keep going, you know. And so when you're saying like this notion of like a particular group being in vogue or whatever, I'm always then I'm thinking like, oh man, like, why do we have to see the end of it? Like, why don't we just rally? Like, why don't we volley it? Like, why don't we make it keep going? And hopefully that it becomes like just part of how everything is going as opposed to like, oh, there, this is going to just have its, uh, its moment and then die out. And um, yeah, because then where can we, where can we start? Where, if we want sustainability for ourselves, like if we want so, like sustainability for our practices or for ourselves or sustenance for our health and all this, like we need to like, for me, I was thinking like, how come, how come I don't have that sentiment of wanting to like, Make sure that this guy succeeds. No, right? We have to sustain each other. I think as yeah. immigrants, we have this crab barrel mentality where, where everyone's trying to get to the, as soon as that crab gets to the top, we just like, you know, tear them down. And if anything, we need to like, bust, Help them. or just bust open the crab barrel and yeah, just let the crabs be free. Saying. That's a brown ceiling moment. <laughs> See, that's what we, I'm like, why, why, why do we feel that way that it's only for a passing time or it's in vogue now? It's like, why don't we just be like, this? we're going to make this like, like, be like the rah rah siskumba of this motherfucker and like cheerlead this shit because I'm in line. Like I'm in line too. Like I'm in line, and then when I get there, I want people to be like Mario, yay! I don't want people to be like Mario. I hope you eat shit next week, you know. So um, I don't know that. So when you say that, I thought about my life coach, and I'm like, oh, that's how I was feeling about him too. Like oh, I was like, this guy, he's doing good right now, but uh. Uh, it's going to be pass. Be and, happy for him. Yeah, I got to be happy for him. Karma. Yeah. Karma, right? Yeah, I got to be happy for him. And he's doing great things. Like so. And plus, if he's your life coach, I mean. Yeah, I'm going to be in line. I'm going to be like on stage with him, like at the seminar. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think, Michelle, the, I'm just picking up on the idea of the collaboration and, and creative sustainability. Can I just ask about how you started the conversation with the library, not... Like, how did that happen? Just because I'm interested in just the strategies or the processes or just how do you begin that conversation? Or how did you? I mean, it's a, it's a long time coming. You know, I, I had already been um, taking classes there for many years. And uh, at Land's Edge, um, during the 2017 to 18 cycle, uh, was actually based at the Southern California Library. So we got into, you know, many conversations about how that year would proceed, you know, how the fellowship would be framed, you know, who we would invite, who we wouldn't, um, all of those kinds of nitty gritty negotiations where the real politics lives. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, uh, so that um, was kind of already in place as a foundation. But then when I, uh, you know, began the Memory and Resistance Library Laboratory, the first thing I wanted to do was to collaborate with the library because I understood um, how many needs they had mm -hmm. <laughs> and how, um, you know, talk about operating in the midst of scarcity, mm -hmm. you know, how they uh, are able to continue to do their work in the midst of what seems like impossible circumstances. And yet they do it because they love what they do. They, mm -hmm. they know that they need to do this because um, because of love for the community, basically, and for the histories that they're um, the stewards of, in a way. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I would go back to, uh, you know, 
love as uh, being a site that's incredibly messy <laughs> and complicated. And we all know, like, you've never felt as alone as you have with a lover next to you. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, <laughs> so when you start thinking about, you know, love in those kinds of um, ways and you understand that, you know, collaboration and all of its messiness and, and all of the times that it seems like it's much easier to work on your own <laughs> is actually um, really the, the only way <laughs> mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. I mean, there's a part of me that absolutely needs my kind of personal practice, you know, mm -hmm. where I work stuff out and, mm -hmm. you know, that, where that has to happen. But um, I was thinking like one of the way, ways I move forward in this world has to be like multimodal. There's that kind of mm. intimate flexion space, but there has to be the space of engagement with others, mm -hmm. the space of building and, you know, really doing something that you would never thought <laughs> you, you would never be capable of mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. on your own. That's why I actually uh, love working in the club space um, as well, because that's a, 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 another step into uh, collectivity in terms of not just the fact that there is a number of people in a space, but just the nature of the space itself um, and using that space as a space for um, creative expression, for organizing. Um, and because it is kind of an abject space as well, when we were talking about like kind of... Um, the guttural or mm. failure, not necessarily failure maybe, but shadow spaces where it's it's, things are, are liminal. Exactly. <laughs> right. um, it's kinetic, it's cathartic, and there's a lot of, um, it's actually been some the places where some of the um, most interesting and innovative ideas from the collective have emerged mm. in my visibility. Mm -hmm. uh, so... Ami's piece was really beautiful that she did that that ritual that usually men do where she kind of inverted the role. Yeah. I mean, that was really a powerful performance that happened at, at the at, club, at the which club. a lot of people, we were getting messages from uh, Iran and, you know, from the woke um, community in the Bay Area. How could you do this? Uh, so basically it was a uh, Mohram, which is a, a month of mourning in the Islamic tradition. Uh, specifically for the Shia sect, is marked in uh, by public ceremonies of self-flagellation, usually by men. And there are female traditions, but they're in private spaces. So, um, you know, one of my dear friends and collaborators, Amita Motabali, who I mentioned earlier, um, she is from the Shia tradition, did this public um, self-flagellation in the club space. Uh, while invoking histories of um, female martyrs, uh, women who have been killed in the wars on terror. Mm. So there was a lot of outcry uh, because it was a woman, because it was a public space, because it was a nightclub space rather than a sacred space. Or an institution. Or an institution. Um, and uh, which, by the way, institutions have a lot of rules about working with blood. So there was some <laughs> blood that happened, you know, bleeding yeah. that happened during this performance. So. Um, and yet, I don't think it could have happened anywhere else. And I actually think it was, you know, kind of, um, I'm really radical and groundbreaking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it was one of my favorite performances I saw this year. It was really powerful and yeah. beautiful and moving and a reminder of why it's important to work outside of, of the institutions uh, where we get to set our own rules and our own boundaries. Yeah, and I, I, I feel honored that, you know, Disco Stan was able to host that. I, it did come with a lot of, I was mm -hmm. very, I had a lot of fear mm -hmm. about doing, doing it. There's a whole other layer of having a nightclub with like, you know, Muslim-centered populations in the wake of pulse and all of that so mm -hmm. there's like all of that that like anxiety that comes with that as well um in challenging challenging things but um but yeah i don't think it could have happened anywhere else so mm. it's uh it's kind of a privilege to be able to do that mm. and at each time it opens up it's it's organic it just it opens up new new things that i that i didn't think about that you know the and the community is feeding each other and pushing each other um in really beautiful ways. Yeah, I call that I call that there's two into call the two sides of the coin. There's like 
the official story and then the orificial story. And the orificial story is that which speaks, which spews, which bleeds, and all these things. So it sounds like there was like a space of the orifice kind of happen happening with Discostan and Ami. That's great. But but what you were talking about into well, we, many of us have been talking about but intimacy. Like I basically come from like the night night world and, and activism and act up, and um, uh, a nightclub is a can be a very very intimate personal space where many people don't even get to be themselves until they arrive uh, to that literal sacred space of a nightclub, um, and you know that's kind of where a lot of my practice has been rooted. And, and in nightclub and in celebration and in, and in activism and celebration. Um, and um, so I think it's... it's An intimacy, know, yeah. Can't be overstated, um, mm -hmm. the intimacy of the nightclub. Mm -hmm. So I would like to thank you all for being here today. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you all. Thank you thank all. You. Thank you. Thank you all for being intimate. Thank you for listening. If you want to learn more about the artists or join in the conversation, visit extraonline.org or find us on Instagram. This series was made possible by generous support from California Arts Council Arts and Public Media Grant, the Michael Asher Foundation, and KCET's Artbound. Recorded at Catasonic Studios in Echo Park by Mark Wheaton with production assistance from Sarah Ellen Fowler and Theo Greenlee. Thank you to Shaolin Dub for our theme song. 